Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, I am joined by Sean Sheehy from the Movable Book Society. We're talking about books that have movable parts, not just pages that turn, but books where the art literally pops up off the page. The Movable Book Society was established in 1993 after a librarian from Rutgers University called Anne R. Montanero published a book called Pop-Up and Movable Books, a Bibliography. The positive feedback convinced Anne that there was enough interest from collectors to found a society about movable books. The Movable Book Society is a non-profit organisation that provides a forum for artists, booksellers, collectors, curators and others to share enthusiasm about pop-up and movable books. There are nearly 450 members worldwide. Now Sean is a book artist and a paper engineer. And paper engineer is surely one of the best job titles in the world. His speciality is presenting animals and plants through movable paper structures. Welcome Sean. Hi Richard, thanks for having me on the show. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. All right. Um, my first question. I tried to define movable books in my introduction rather badly, but what's your definition of a movable book? Yeah. It's um, you know it's kind of kind of interesting and muddled in that you know we have lots of different kinds of paper engineered structures, especially historically, and of course the society calls itself movable book and is sort of using it as a little bit of an umbrella term, uh, sort of equaling paper engineered things. But sort of formally, uh, if you think about the difference between something that is actuated when you open the page, like it becomes sculptural just by turning, then that's formally pop-up. And then more specifically, movables then kind of get applied to uh, structures that you actuate after the page has been opened and then you know you're grabbing and pulling on a tab or you're turning a wheel or something like that. Now would it be right to say that the majority of movable books that people see and encounter uh, are intended to be read and enjoyed by children? So I'm, I'm thinking of maybe princess books or picture right. books that have incorporated movable parts. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're solidly in the world of youth, for sure, and novelty, uh, you know, even more so. Though I think it's, you know, I think it's good to keep in mind that, um, you know, that hasn't always been the case. You know, originally, paper-engineered structures were, you know, absolutely for adults because they were used to explore science or astronomy or astrology in a book. And, and things are kind of circling back heavily right now. Um, Matthew Reinhardt, for example, you know, has just done a, um, a Game of Thrones book. Um, David Halcock has done a, a Walking Dead book. Um, and even my most recent one, you know, they're definitely not kid, kid, kid books. The so we're talking about zombies and dragons right. that pop up off the page. And, and, you know, really adult-level graphic imagery, especially in The Walking Dead one. 
Okay, I dread to think what would pop up off the page on a Game of Thrones pop-up book. (laughs) Right. It's pretty fun, though. It's pretty fun. But, you know, it's also, I think, interesting to keep in mind that uh, kids don't buy those books. So on a certain level... Uh, you know, the marketing is, is geared towards attracting the attention of grown-ups who buy books for kids. And, you know, I, I am told all the time by folks who buy a book saying, you know, I bought this and I'm glad to have it, but, you know, my child is never going to touch it until they're 20. So, you know, they're, they're almost universally a shared reading experience. So the adults are just as much engaged as the kids are, I would say. Right. So that sort of brings us where to the question where um, when a book uh, crosses over into being a piece of piece of art. So you're a book artist. Yeah. You use the book as your your medium to express your art. Yeah. Um, when when does that happen? When does it become a piece of art? Well, I think, you know, I think to a certain degree that's a, you know, that's also marketing. Lots of lots of folks who work within the trade industry, you know, would would like to to consider what they make to be artful um and and certainly for me uh a lot of what i make are handmade limited edition books that therefore sell more at you know gallery prices than they do ordering them through amazon.com so you know so i think that's one some one way of looking at it and then also you know, in the in the in the industry, uh, publishers are looking for you know interesting ways to get people to pick up a book and look at it, and so paper engineers are hired to come in and get involved with the project. For me, I uh, I choose paper engineering, you know, partly because it's it's one of the most compelling ways to uh, you know to sort of present the ideas that I'm thinking about. So I think when you know that engineering is really tightly integrated with that overall project that kind of moves solidly into the art scene as well. Now, I believe paper engineering has a long history. A a moment ago, you mentioned um, it being used to describe science or uh, um, the heavens, maybe even. Um, So here at A Books, we do see movable books selling. for thousands of dollars when they've managed to survive for a long time intact. So when, when did movable books begin? So here's where um, you're going to see me turning to some notes. <laughs> That's okay. The history of the world is, is not as solid in my head as I would like it to be. So our first, um, our first movable structure, recorded movable structure, was created by a monk whose name is Matthew Paris. And it's dated to the early 1200s. And it's, and it's solidly one of those Volvel structures. It's a wheel that's sewn into the page. And um, as a monk, he was interested in having a, having a, a, a resource to help calculate uh, uh, Easter, essentially. And so um, using a sewn-in wheel made it very easy to kind of, you know, turn things and line things up and, and help establish those calendar dates. So he gets, he gets that credit. But, you know, still it's fairly, it's fairly simple. It's, 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 a, it's a circular piece of paper or vellum 
in this case, sewn with linen thread onto the page. Um, Lothar Megendorfer, the very popular and famous uh, paper engineer who gives his name to uh, our society's big prize, um, was known for his really elaborate and really engaging movable structures. So again, these are things that aren't sculptural at all, but when you turn the page, there's a tab to pull and um, you're seeing, in his case, many points of actuation where, you know, wings are flapping or heads are turning or, uh, you know, cats are laughing and, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's late 1800s for uh, Lothar Megendorfer. And our first actual self-actuating, self-erecting, the term they used, um, from 1929, 1930, um, by a man whose name is S. Louis Giraud. And um, so that's where pop-ups kind of really originally originated. Forgive the redundancy. That's our starting point. It's a, it's a long history. I'm always yeah. amazed at the contribution of monks yeah. to books and literature. They were, they were all that it was for a long time, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so if we jump forward uh, to the modern age and what you do, yeah. uh, you, you create limited edition artist books, but you also do trade books for publishers, and you, you lead workshops as well yeah. to um, help anyone uh, learn to engineer paper. For you, what, what, what's the attraction for you? Why do you love movable books? Mm. You know, I, um, I have for a long time been interested in thinking dimensionally, thinking sculpturally. Um, my dad's got a wood shop that's been attached to the house I grew up in, um, you know, forever. And so I was a, I was a carving and whittling kind of kid. Um, and uh, the in moving into in moving into paper engineering, uh, you know, there's something that's just really satisfying about playing the the right brain left brain thing. Um, even though I guess we're not calling it that anymore. Um, but you know, thinking thinking creatively and thinking technically analytically and um you know engaging all of those um uh, it sounds like a just a regular engineer describing the satisfaction of building something <laughs> that works sure. and is also attractive you could be talking about a bridge sure or a car um but i will tell you um you know if someone well i don't know i i'm i'm wanting to think about the 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 wow moment you know, where someone, someone picks up this book and they can tell something's going on because pop-up books are a little wonky looking from the outside. All the pages don't fit tightly together. But, you know, there's something that's very unexpected. Um, and, and when the paper engineering is very dramatic, um, you know, you turn that page and there's something that's kind of astonishing that happens in, in a movement that's created, in a volume that's created. And you don't get you know quite that same effect if you've made a beautiful functional building, um, 
you know, depending, I suppose, depending. So there's that. But also, you know, I love I love to tell stories, and uh, and and you know, for sure, uh, my interests are fairly political as well. So um, it's a really it's a really useful way to engage with the world, to think about the things that are important to me, um, and and uh, and a pretty powerful way to engage an audience. You know, rather than just having a printed word, I've got this sculptural animated thing that's helping to, to grab attention, you know, and then hopefully they'll stick around and, and read a few things while they're there. Now your society, which is, uh, sounds most interesting, you, you have an annual conference, you've already mentioned you have an award. Um, what, what do you do at your annual conference when all of the um, the, I'm not sure what the right word is, but the people who are devoted to movable <laughs> books, when you all gather, the movables, when you all come together, let's, what do let's you do? That. Let's use that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, quick correction, we're, we're biannual. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, we meet, we meet for a weekend. Um, and, you know, and it's curious, because when, when Anne launched all of this, you know, she... She's a librarian, she's a collector, uh, she's a historian. And, um, and initially she brought together collectors. And, and that was the base of our organization for, uh, you know, for several decades. Um, but we're, we are absolutely seeing a shift right now. And we have more and more practitioners who are becoming members of the society and who are attending that conference. So we have presentations where we have historians. Um, uh, Suzanne Karschmidt is going to be our keynote next year and she's a, she's a movables historian that um, right here in Chicago at the Newberry Library. Um, we're, we have uh, collectors who talk about their collections. We have, um, we have artists who come and talk about process. Uh, we have conservators who come and talk about managing collections. So we're kind of, you know, hitting on all facets of the, of the whole scene at this point. We also like to visit towns where uh, there are collections that we can visit. So the University of Denver in October is going to be one of our destinations to go see the pop-up books that they've collected. And we also like to tie in um, you know, some practical workshop experiences to let people get their hands dirty. And, and I presume there's plenty of uh, examples of pop-up and movable books to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Excellent. So here's, here's sort of a $64,000 question, but how do you do it? What are the tools you, of your trade that you use when you're constructing a pop-up book? So it's really, you know, it's really fairly simple. Um, you know, a, a, a ruler and an X-Acto knife and a mat and a nice stack of uh, correctly weighted cardstock. <clears throat> you know, something that's around 200 GSM is really good for drafting in particular. And it's fairly close to the weight most uh, trade books are, are printed on. Uh, and, and a lot of initial, uh, a lot of the initial 
rendering and drafting is done you know, analog. I've got my hand tools and that stack of cardstock, and I'm basically sketching in three dimensions, cutting shapes and gluing them together. Uh, but, you know, no question. Also, uh, it moves ultimately into the digital because once I have a model built, I'll be taking all the pieces apart and scanning all of the individual pieces so that I can then bring it into a vector-based software program, uh, in my case, Illustrator. And then once I've got those outlines drawn, uh, you know, refinements can go more quickly and more easily. And then also in the trade industry, those are the, those are the files that are used to build the dies for cutting. Um, and then for me, I also have <coughs> a, a cutting machine, a blade-based uh, cutting machine. It's called a plotter cutter. And that's connected to the computer, so it's very easy for me to bring up a file. And rather than, you know, pressing P for print, I can press, you know, C for cut and cut out all of the shapes on a sheet and make that part of the process go more quickly. So I presume the dimensions and the exact measurements are crucial. Like if you are half a millimeter off, it, a, a structure may not render, may not rise correctly. Is that right? Accuracy is absolutely important. I bet usually half a millimeter <laughs> won't break the bank, but okay. but you know half an inch will you know for sure. Right. Um, yeah. So it's 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 very fussy. It's very fussy. Yeah. So when you uh, do a piece of work for a, a trade publisher that's going to be published in maybe thousands of copies, you hand off a, a digital file to them. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, uh, a digital file, but also an, uh, a paper mock-up as well. So they can see how, you know, how everything works in real life as well as having the digital file. Goodness, I, I can't imagine how they put that together yeah, same uh, for mass <laughs> consumption. <laughs> in, uh, I, I have no idea how that works. Um, a lot of it is Greg. <laughs> which is the name I give to the man who works at Kendalwick, who has been, you know, my publisher for my two trade books. Right. Um, and it's just, it's the, it's this man who is the one who goes to Asia, Southeast Asia, and who is communicating with, um, you know, the production companies. So he's kind of got it, he's got it worked out. So what would be, if you were starting from scratch and you were going to say do, um, um, a fine press book uh, uh, as a as a book artist um, what would be the process for you where, where would where would you start do some serious thinking uh, about concept for sure uh, and, and in fact like right now I'm kind of at that stage right now for my next project I'm, I'm concepting so um, generating a lot of ideas taking a lot of notes doing a lot of research um, and, 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 and once that concept is solid, then I can think like a book person and start to uh, you know, divide that content out into spreads and think about how each different spread is going to be featured and how things are gonna land on there. And, and, and because, you know, it's a very it's it's a very fussy 
territory, and I'm definitely a you know, pretty fussy guy when I work. I'm, I pretty much have a, a, a tight idea of what I want to talk about, where it's going to go before I start to do any image development. So I'm, so I'm working very specifically you know, towards, towards the end of expressing the idea. But once that's all, once that's all nailed down, then um, you know, I'll sit down and bust out those tools and grab that pile of cardstock and, and then start to think about the rendering and how each of the layouts are gonna come together. Um, and, and also, you know, with an eye towards pushing the, pushing the industry as well and trying to find some interesting and new and innovative ways to, uh, to integrate engineering into the, into, the, into the image. And also because I'm working with, uh, you know, items from the wild world, I like to work fairly representational. Uh, representationally as well so I'm looking at a lot of photos and drawings to you know get the shapes right and and color when you're um, do you start with card that is already colored or do you add color later like a painter um, how, do, how do you introduce color to a particular piece of art yeah definitely definitely all white for a very long time or you know gray whatever the stack of cheap stuff that's sitting there um, and you know because for me I'm not I'm not an illustrator per se so drafting skills um, uh, aren't, aren't on top of the list for me so a lot of that image building is is purely through the sculpting you know through the pieces of cut paper and then uh, and then adding in details also using pieces of cut paper uh, so yeah, that all that all is happening. The application of it is happening further down the line. Though I'm definitely thinking about it, you know, thinking about right. it as I'm working. Okay. Um, so for your for your work, is there is there one particular piece of paper engineering that you've completed that you are really proud of that you you would love to tell people about? Absolutely, um, the sixth extinction book. The one that just came out for me last year. Uh, when I first when I first started developing this idea, yeah, 2005 maybe something like that, because of course it existed as an artist book first before it became a trade book. Um, so it's been in it's been in my life for a long time, and in thinking about this post-apocalyptic world. Uh, and thinking about a lot of the bugs in this post-apocalyptic world, I, I kind of wanted to lean on a little bit of a sort of mechanical, a very apparent mechanical aesthetic. So, for example, in this sixth extinction, it, it opens with, um, with uh, a roach um, that's you know, about 10 inches long, physically in the book, it's about 10 inches long. And... And I wanted the whole body to be, you know, fairly well articulated. And so I built the roach um, with body segments. And each of the segments of the body are tabbed into its neighbor. And because they're tabbed into slots, um, rather than being glued, uh, you know, they remain very flexible. 
and so the body moves fluidly. So aesthetically, uh, I have the separated sections of the body and I have the tabs that are showing, which makes it feel sort of mechanical. But at the same time, in the building of it, it moves in a, a very lifelike way. Uh, so that's an interesting sort of contrast. Uh, and also something that I had never seen in a trade book, so it felt like a solid innovation. So those are all very satisfying for me. I love your pride in a cockroach. <laughs> they, they, no, they got not many people say that. On. Yeah. <laughs> That's very funny. Excellent. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, one final question, Sean. Yeah, we ask yeah. this to all our guests. Yeah. Uh, what book uh, or books are you currently reading? So I, uh, because I live the life that I do, um, I spend a lot of time listening to audiobooks. And I, uh, I get a lot of value from, uh, from books that are, are, are heavily plot-driven. Uh, and detective uh, genre is high on my list. And right now, uh, I'm reading through the Ross MacDonald uh, series. Uh, you know, which came out in the 50s. I think it started coming out in the 50s. And, you know, he's he's sort of billed as being one of our early noir authors, and he has his crisp, muscular prose. And right now I'm, uh, I'm sort of using that to think about a style of developing text for, for my next project. So it's fun, and also I'm learning something. Um, in print, um, I finally picked up my first Wendell Berry, uh, he's been on my list for a long time, but wandering through an airport at one point this summer, I saw his latest called The Art of Loading Brush. Um, and so, well, maybe a third of the way into that, I don't get to it as often as I do the audio stuff, which I listen to every day. Uh, but super interesting you know, to hear an agrarian talk about politics, especially uh, in the 21st century and how we don't do a great job of valuing the people who grow things and make things. So I'm filling up my head with that too. Do you have the audio books playing while you're, you're working on your sculptures in oh, your yeah. workshop? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, that, does it distract you sometimes? Um, if, I, if I am having a hard time concentrating, then I'll usually uh, pivot over to just listening to the radio. Um, I, I'm, I'm in a room by myself, so I'm pretty much always listening to something, you know, just for the company of it. But for the most part, you know, if it's a, it's a, if it's a fairly brisk plot um, and I'm doing something that's, you know, just utterly repetitious and mindless, then it's actually a really, uh, they're very compatible. It actually sounds like a very pleasant working environment to be listening to a book while creating a book. Uh, I, I value it deeply. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, you're a very lucky man. <laughs> all right. Okay, Sean, that's um, all we have time for this week. Yeah. Um, a big thank you to Sean Sheehy for joining us. Uh, you can learn more about the Movable Book Society at their website, which is movablebooksociety.org. 
movablebooksociety.org. And you can learn more about Sean and his amazing work. His website is filled with lots of wonderful pictures of what he does at seansheehy.com. And I'll spell that. That's Sean with S-H-A-W-N, Sheehy, S-H-E-E-H-Y.com, seansheehy.com. Thank you, Sean. It was lovely to speak to you. Equally, Richard. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And to everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.